Welcome to What She Said, A Thrill of Hope. I'm Amanda Wood, and today is Wednesday, December 14th. Okay, so here we go. We're finally going to be starting um, chapter two of Luke. So today we're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 3. And um, it's just a very quick passage, but I want to take a deeper look at the actual historical world, the time that Jesus was born into. I love history, and I specifically take great interest in studying ancient history and how it lines up and intersects with the Bible. So I hope that you will enjoy digging pretty deep into this story of the world that our Savior was born into. So here we go with Luke 2, 1 through 3. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered everyone to his own city. So Jesus was born into the Roman Empire. The progression of major empires from early on was um, the Babylon, the Babylonian rather, empire. And that's what we see Daniel being carried off from Israel to be a part of is the Babylonian empire, which was then in Daniel's time defeated by the Medo-Persian or just Persian, you see at times, empire. And then eventually the Persian empire was defeated by Alexander the Great and the Greek empire. And then eventually the Greek empire was defeated by Julius Caesar and the Roman empire. So that's where we are now. We are just before BC turns into AD in the Roman empire which at that time included all of Europe, the northern coastal regions of Africa, and a large portion of the Middle East, which included Israel, um, known as the Promised Land. So Luke tells us that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and he was one of the most notable men in ancient history. Caesar Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire from 27 BC until AD 14. He was born with the name Octavian. His grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar, and she adopted him after his father died. And this was presumably to keep Octavian in better proximity to the throne. Julius Caesar had no heirs, so there was definitely some political jockeying for who was going to end up succeeding him when he died, which turned out to be a whole lot earlier than anyone initially expected. But when Julius Caesar's sister and Octavian's grandmother passed away around 51 BC, Julius Caesar actually adopted the boy himself and changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar when he named him his heir to the throne in 45 BC. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, which is March 44 BC, the Ides of March, um, at that time, Octavian, Mark Antony, and Lepidus split the kingdom three ways. And this led to a period of aggression, grabbing for money and power in Rome and all of its provinces. 
Lepidus was the weakest of the three and was soon pushed out, while Octavian and Mark Antony ruled as rivals until 31 BC. And let's also, just as a reminder, when you're talking about BC, you're going from far back is large numbers all the way up and it gets smaller and smaller until you hit AD and then it starts getting bigger again. So we're in 31 BC right now and Caesar Augustus doesn't really become Caesar and emperor until 27 BC. So in 31 BC, we now have Octavian and Mark Antony and they are ruling together, but in in constant state of war. So Mark Antony was helped by Cleopatra and the military might of Egypt. When Julius Caesar conquered Egypt, he set up Cleopatra as some say Pharaoh. I don't really consider her Pharaoh because she was Macedonian. She was Greek and she was occupying um, the area, but she was ruling over Egypt at the time and she created sort of a deal, a peace with Mark Antony, just as she had with Julius Caesar before him. But it turns out Cleopatra um, put her eggs in the wrong basket there and even with the military might of Egypt, Mark Antony couldn't stand, and he was defeated along with Cleopatra fully by Octavian at the Battle of Actium in 30 BC. So now we're in 30 BC, and um, Octavian is in place to become the actual sole ruler of the Roman Empire, but it was going to come in incremental gains. There wasn't really just a way for him to just totally seize the throne, and that's it. So he had to first kind of court the Roman Senate. He had to make himself appealing to them so that they would be willing to name him um, the leader. They were still sort of a democracy, even though the Roman Republic had kind of fallen when Julius Caesar was killed. So he had to get the Roman Senate on board, and then he had had to actually get the people of Rome and all of its provinces on board with his rule. And at that time, when he managed to do that, that was 27 BC, and he then took the title of Caesar Augustus. But this entire time since the death of Julius Caesar was marked by just decades of war. Rome was absolutely destroyed, and few things are as demoralizing as extreme wealth that they enjoyed under Julius Caesar and the Roman Republic, followed by absolute devastating poverty. But That is exactly where the people of Rome found themselves and much of the Roman Empire found themselves. Caesar Augustus worked fast and he was good at his job. He created sweeping change and brought peace by not only ending the war with Mark Antony, but eventually enforcing peace across the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana. He was a skilled politician and he brought power back to the Roman Senate, which was something that in deared him to them. He flooded Rome with Egyptian money to pay the soldiers who had fought for him and spur on the Roman economy. So prior to this, Egypt had been conquered, in a sense, by um, Julius Caesar, and he installed Cleopatra as the leader there, but they were still, they had their own leader and they were still basically leading themselves. Now that they've lost, alongside Mark Antony, um, the Roman Empire completely now controls Egypt as well. But the Mediterranean world had never seen such peace and prosperity as they achieved under Augustus, and it lasted for 200 years. But it came at a cost for Rome. 
Rome was once a shining beacon of democracy in a monarchical world, but Augustus demanded absolute power and control. While Julius Caesar had declared himself a total dictator prior to Augustus, he still ruled in a way alongside of the democratic system in the Roman Republic. But now that was no more. They had an absolute monarchy. So Jesus entered into this world which was in desperate need of a savior. Now I'm sure you'd point out that there is no point in human history where a savior hasn't been needed, and that's certainly true, but this time in history was uniquely prepared to welcome the Messiah. When we look around the world today, people are always convincing themselves that this leader or that politician or that political party will be the one. They'll be the one to fix everything. It's always so obvious to everyone, right? The answer, it's right in front of your face. All we need to do is change a few things and boom, heaven on earth, everything will be perfect. We hear it all the time and it never ever works. And nobody could know this better than Rome. They had a political savior in Augustus. The world truly looked better than ever before from a human perspective, but it was still so clearly not enough because they sat under absolute tyranny and oppression. They were under no illusions at this time that a simple human man could save them. How could they be? Clearly, government could not solve their problems. It wasn't the answer then, and it is never the answer today. So, This census that led to the events of Jesus' birth was not just for record-keeping purposes like ours primarily are today. This was near the beginning of um, when Augustus was truly getting everything rolling his way in the Roman Empire. So the purpose of a census like this is to efficiently tax every member of the Roman world. At the time of the reign of Augustus, it's believed that there are about 70 million people who lived in the entire Roman Empire. Justin Martyr, a theologian and Greek philosopher, wrote about 100 years after the life of Jesus, and he claimed that the records for this census at that time still existed and were searchable for him. If we look back at our verses for today, it says the census first took place while Quirinius was governor. First took place is better translated as first enrollment, which distinguishes it from a latter enrollment in 6 AD, which is something that Luke mentions in Acts 5.37. While Quirinius was governing Syria is a source of debate. Historically, it does not appear that he governed Syria while Herod was king. According to Josephus, who is another ancient Jewish um, historian, Quirinius did not begin to govern Syria until as many as 11 years following the death of Herod the Great. N.T. Wright presents a solution for this based on nuances in translating the original Greek. Without getting too technical, um, the translation of this passage could also be before the time when Quirinius was governing Syria. So instead of saying it's while he was, it could mean actually in the original Greek, before he was governing Syria. But if that's the case, why invoke Quirinius at all if he wasn't governing at the time in focus? 
And we believe this is because he did have a prominent governmental position position as a um, procurator in Judea at the time of Jesus's birth, according to Justin Martyr. So this means that um, the records show that Quirinius had a role in the office of the treasury and likely had something to do with the census for the taxation in Judea, which is where Bethlehem was located. So basically what this verse is telling us is this census took place before before Quirinius was governing Syria. So from that, you know that it, it was the time that he was in charge of the census, not during the time that he was governor. So everyone goes to be registered. One man, Caesar Augustus, speaks and the whole world moves. Jesus came at a time when the earth was ruled by perhaps the most powerful leader in human history. And because of this, he had created a whole situation that allowed for a lot of things that would not have been possible before. For instance, Rome built an exquisite number of roads that were now making the entire Roman Empire very travelable when they previously were not. There were not a lot of roads. But Augustus was good at his job, as we said, and he managed to really develop the whole area. But still, even as strong and powerful as Augustus was, we can see that he was still just a tool in the hand of God. He thought the census was his idea, his command, his word. But God was actually in process of fulfilling Micah 5.2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. All power is granted by God and controlled by God. There is no one equal to him. He is utterly sovereign over all time and all mankind. When things get bad, we often feel like God is out of control. Look at the world. He's got to be out of control, or at least he's not paying attention, right? It's easy to feel abandoned when the noise and the chaos of this world distracts us. But when you come back to Bethlehem and you come back to these insignificant people of Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zacharias, and you come back to these nothing places which are barely worthy of mention, and you see that God used it all. He was using the life of Augustus to fit into his plan as a child in the Roman Republic, just as much as he's using these insignificant Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, and Zacharias, and many, many other biblical players in his story. He didn't just care for the kings. He uses everyone for what he needs them to do, and he orchestrates through just mundane events like boring taxation and censuses, this fulfillment of his great promise, this promise of Messiah, and this promise of redemption. A God who can do all of this is a God worth trusting with your life. It's tempting to think that maybe God is just kind of up there observing or just moving the big chess pieces. But I think you'll have such a different perspective in your walk and your faith and in your relationship with God when you realize that he is controlling every single thing. 
And that's tough because we have free will, but he also knows what we're going to choose. And he knows that that he's going to be able to use that for his good and for his purpose. The entire course of human history was designed to bring Jesus, the Messiah, to the world at this moment in time. And God knew who the players would be when he threw it all into motion before the creation of the world. And I think that's just one of the most stunning things that I can ever think of about our God. That's all for us today.